Hi, it's Dr. Craig here. I want to welcome you to a new interview series that I'm going to do. And I'm not going to stop doing the shorter podcasts. We'll be doing them regularly. But these interviews will come probably around once a week. And they're with people that mostly I know and have achieved something or are still achieving things in the human performance field. So they might be from sport, uh, the corporate world, military, education, or anywhere where people have to be inspired to perform. So I do hope you enjoy it. They're casual interviews. They can be up to 90 minutes long. And I know I've enjoyed doing them. And I hope you enjoy it as well. Any feedback, as always, I'd love to hear from you. And please have a wonderful day. Hi, it's Dr. Craig here, and I've got Terry McFlynn here. So this is great. We're lucky to have Terry, but this is the first one of our new podcast series where we're going to interview uh, primarily friends of mine as well that have had a big impact on performance and have been involved in different areas of performance in, in our world. And Terry's a good friend of mine, but he was a player that I was associated with for four years when you are captain at Sydney FC. And... Just most importantly about Terry, I don't think you'll ever find a person that says anything negative about him as a person. And me, uh, it's always about what a person is like first. And uh, Terry's always been that. And so we've been very fortunate to remain friends uh, over this time. We last worked together in 2013, but we've stayed in contact regularly since then. So g'day, Tess. Greg, how are you, mate? I'm very good. And how, how are you going during this period of time? Mate, I'm good. I'm good. I'm over here in uh, sunny Perth. The sun's shining every day. And um, yeah, look, as you said, it's it's unusual times that we all all find ourselves in. But you know, we, we just have to find a, a positive in, in everything. And, and you know, the family's well. The kids are safe. Um, my wife's well. My in-laws are good. And I'm over here in Perth. So yeah, mate, we're we're all good. And uh, kids went back to school today. So there's a little bit of normality coming. Oh, that's great. All right, Tez, you talk about sunny Perth, but you didn't start there. So let's take you back to your origin, really, and, and a little bit about yourself and your, your origin story. Yeah, look, I grew up in a, a little village in, in Northern Ireland, in South Derry, called Swatra. Um, I was born in 1981. Um, and anyone who uh, knows Irish politics or Irish history, that was a notoriously uh, troublesome time in, in Northern Ireland. Um, that was what was was actually known as the trouble. So I grew up through that period of time. Um, the little village I'm, I'm from, my family still lives there now, um, is a, a Catholic village. I went to the local Catholic school, um, St. John's Primary School, um, where our games were um, of choice. Uh, was Gaelic football in Hurling, which is uh, the Irish games. Um, from St. John's Primary School, I went to St. Patrick's College, Mahara which is a bigger high school. Um, and it was basically a, a culmination of all the little villages surrounding uh, Maharaj as, as a town. Um, so there's probably about two, two and a half thousand people at the, at the high school, pretty big high school. Um, but then with that, because it was uh, all the little villages surrounding, we had a pretty strong um, Gaelic team. So we were, we were probably the best uh, school in the, certainly in the province, if not the whole of Ireland at that time at the various age groups. So um, 
we were very, very strong. You know, we used to win the Cornenog, which is, uh, I think it was on the 13 and a half. The Dalton, which is on the 15 and a half. Ranafast, um, McCrory Cups, um, which then led into the Hogan Cup, which is uh, the All-Ireland Championships. Um, and we, we were in, like I said before, we were, we were winning at most times. So um, it's funny to say now, looking back on it, but um, I actually got sick of winning the trophies. Uh, <laughs> have to try something different. So and you played. So you played Gaelic football. I played Gaelic football. Um, uh, my position was full forward. Believe it or not, I used to a bit like Barry Hall in the AFL. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, yeah, I had a lot of success. Like I said, not so much at club level. We were, I think we got to the county finally on the 14s was probably the best my age group did. Um, but certainly at school level, we won, we won everything we entered. Um, so yeah, my uncle who <clears throat> has been a massive influence on my whole career, um, uh, you know, we used to train in the park every night. We decided to, to play soccer, to play football. Um, so we joined a little team in Mahara, the next village called Glenview United. Um, and it was a relatively average season the first year that I played. Um, but then from there, the, the strongest team in the area was a team called Mahara Colts. Um, so I joined Mahara Colts. The guy who was running the club at that time was a guy called Robin Clark. The coach was a guy, Noel Mitchell. Um, and Noel is now actually the assistant coach of the Northern Ireland women's national team. Mm-hmm. A good guy, really good guy. They say myself and my uncle would train down in the local park every night from six o'clock till 10, 10.30 every night. Um, and from there, it, my career sort of progressed really quickly, Craig, to be honest. There's a, there's a big tournament <clears throat> in Northern Ireland called the Milk Cup, um, a junior tournament. So we, as Mahara coach, we entered the tournament um, representing South Derry. So that was the, com- the league that we played in, was the South Derry District Junior League. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, you know, all the scouts from all over England, Europe, everyone was, was at these tournaments and all, all the big clubs come to it. Man United, Liverpool, Celtic, Rangers, Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, Boca Juniors and then national teams. As I went through the age group, they ended up playing for Northern Ireland against Czech Republic, Slovakia, Portugal. A really, really strong tournament. Um, but from there... Then the Northern Ireland schoolboys um, scouting team was there. And I went for trials with the, the Northern Ireland schoolboys. So within probably three years of actually starting to play soccer, I was playing for my country. I was playing for Northern Ireland. Wow. So you never played football like as a, as a six, seven, eight-year-old or anything like that? Nothing structured. I was playing the, down the park with my mates, mm. uh, mostly with my uncle, to be honest. Mm. Playing a lot of... 1v1 stuff and um, shooting drills, passing drills, um, just fun. Uh, yeah. just fun. And yeah. then at school, at school was just, you know, every break time, lunchtime, we'd have a little football pitch out the back of the school and we'd all play. Um, and then after school, be the same. You go down the park with your mates and, and have a game of football. And um, But my first proper game of football, like I say, was probably when I was yeah, 13 or 14. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And the biggest differences you found between Gaelic and, um, and, and football? I suppose you can't use your hands unless you're a goalkeeper. But Yeah, that was the big... The other big difference, Craig, was the structure in football, in mm. soccer. Um, in Gaelic, there's a lot of structure, but a, a lot of it's 1v1 stuff. Mm. If you're playing full forward, the person who's marking you is a full back. 
Um, there's no offsides. Um, so you're very much in your position and it becomes a 1v1 battle. And the, a bit like AFL, to be honest, the more 1v1 battles you can win all over the park, um, you've got a bigger chance of winning the game. And I think going back, <clears throat> you know, your, your field, the reason we were so successful, I think, at St. Pat's Mahara was we were fitter than everyone else and we could outrun teams and we could play two, three passes ahead of everyone else. We could move the ball quicker than everyone else. We were probably the first <clears throat> team. Was a, the coach at the time was a guy called Adrian McGuckin. Um, um, we had a, there was another teacher at the school, a guy called Dermot McNichol. He's still there, actually. Mm. He came across to Australia and played for uh, Hawthorne for a little bit in the NFL. Yeah. He brought back a lot of the hand pass um, movement, quick ball movement through the line. So it was a sort of a different style of football that he brought to us. And um, when, it, when it changed across to start playing soccer, it was a lot more patient, a lot more methodical with the build-up. Um, again, the offside thing, that, that was a big challenge for me when, when I first started. You know. Seems to be a big challenge for some strikers I know as well. <laughs> well back in them days, we didn't have VAR either, which was a good thing. Hey, um, to give people a bit of an idea, I suppose I've spent time with you, so I know Gaelic football and I've got other uh, Irish friends, but just to give people that don't know what Gaelic football is, more an idea of how big it is in Ireland. Um, well, Gaelic football is, there's 15 players in every team. Um, and it might have changed. No, I don't think it has, but it might have changed. You have to play for where you're from. So for me, I was from a little village. Like I say, um, there's no there's no transfer system. There's no open market, unless you move for work to another area. Then you need to get a written letter or oh, dispute. Because it's amateur too, isn't it? Still, it's all amateur. Yeah, it's all amateur. So you start off playing for your local club where you're from. Then if you're very good for your club, you get picked for your county, and then that's when it becomes starts to build the enormity of the game. Um, so the county championship, the Ulster championship, say where I'm from, from Derry, um, Derry could be playing Tyrone and there'd be 25, 30,000 people at the game. The players don't get paid. Mm. Don't get anything. So if you're a county player and a lot of players that I played with through that good St. Pat's Maharaj team went on to be great county players, they'll be training four or five nights a week. Um, they'd work during the day um, they'd come home, get in the car, drive um, to a place called Ombeg in Dungim, which is a dairy national centre of excellence, um, and train there four or five nights a week. And again, the, I think probably in the last five, six years, they've brought in like an alliance or something, um, petrol money, um, mm. money for boots and for gloves. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very, it's, I was going to say it's very amateur. It's not very amateur. It's a very professional in the way it's set up and run but it's not professional in terms of the players don't get any remuneration or salaries. Um, so, so a kid growing up in your village uh, and dreaming of playing sport, the highest, what would, would it be the greatest thing to play Gaelic football for at a very high level or football? Um, I think things are changing now, Craig, but certainly when I was growing up, the, the pinnacle of a kid growing up in my village was to play for the county. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a guy called Anthony Toho, um, from Swatra, who's, if not the best player ever to play the game, he's definitely the best player ever to play for Derry. Um, and he comes from Swatra. And his son is actually now in Australia playing AFL. 
Wow. Yeah, because we, we have seen that across the board. And did you ever play hurling? I did. I played hurling. Um, Swatcher didn't have a hurling team at underage level when I was young. Um, I think it I've, I think it was under third under fourteens might have been the first year that it came in. Is that because I mean I've watched hurling, it's not the safest sport, is it? It's a great sport to watch when it's played properly. Yeah, yeah. It's actually dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous, but when it's played properly and the, the level of skill is fantastic. It, it's actually the quickest game in the world. Mm. All moves from end to end. So again, it's set up 15 players on each team. Um, it's played on a pitch, um, like a rugby pitch, with rugby goals, same as Gaelic, but underneath the crossbar, you've got a net. So if you get it in the net, it's three points. If you put it over the bar, it's one point. Um, you've got a stick. Um, it's a wooden stick with like a bat. Um, and you've got a little uh, slitter, it's called. It's like a baseball, but smaller. Um, it's hard. Um, when I was growing up, you didn't have to wear helmets. Now it's compulsory for kids, um, kids and under to wear um, to wear helmets. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a great sport when it's played properly. Mm, no, it's really good. The girls have a version called Kamogi, um, which is the exact same as hurling, uh, but just the, the female version. It's called Kamogi. Um, Tez, without getting too political, um, what what did the troubles teach you about life? Um, it, it, it was a it was a time, Craig. When looking back on it now, um, it taught me a lot of lessons in life about resilience, about adversity. And, um, but at the time, I didn't I didn't know any different. Yeah. So it just for me, growing up in them times was just that was everyday life. So, like I said, I went to uh, an all Catholic school. Um, three, four miles down the road was an all Protestant school. Um, we didn't go into their area. They didn't come into our area. It was very much, you lived a bit like now in, in isolation. So you just lived the segregated life. You went where you knew you'd be safe uh, mm -hmm. and you didn't go to areas that you knew you shouldn't be in. Um, and a lot of, you know, some people might say, well, how do you know you were in the wrong area? It was very, very easy to distinguish because if you were in a Protestant area, the curbs on the side of the road would be painted red, white, and blue. And there'd be British Union Jacks flying everywhere. If you're in a Catholic area, they'd be painted green, white, and orange, and there'd be Irish tricolors flying. So you very quickly knew what uh, area you were in. Um, and also by, by your name, people could tell um, what religion you were by your name. If it was a um, like Mac Flynn, uh, O'Donnell, O'Connell, um, would be Catholic. If it was something like Robertson, Smith, um, be mm -hmm. a Protestant game. So these are little things that in everyday society and the freedom that we have here and we live in and my kids grow up in, you, you don't pay any attention to. But for me, these are the little things that you had to hone in on and you had to really pay attention to. But um, I think of anything, it, it now looking back on it, it's, it's taught me not to be narrow-minded, not to be brainwashed. I think... And it's in certain ways, that's what it was. It was basically, you know, when we were, like I said, you went to school and you got taught about Irish history. You got taught one side of it. So I got taught the Catholic side of it. My friends, you know, like a lot of Protestant friends, got taught the Protestant side of it. So you had this whole generation of kids that were growing up disliking each other for no reason other than 
they were born on the other side of the road. Yeah. Uh, it was only, when, like I said, when I got into the Northern Ireland uh, schoolboys side at 15, 14, um, that I met a Protestant. Um, and uh, it's a guy called George McCartney, who went on to play for West Ham, Sunderland, uh, had a fantastic career, and we're very good friends th to this day. Now, George comes from a place called the Shankill Road in Belfast. Um, through football, if it wasn't for football, so I would never in a million years have crossed paths with George. Just by the way it, life was in Craig, the way it was set up, that there was no reason or no way we would cross paths in the circles that we mixed, in the areas where we lived. Um, but it was football that, that brought us together. And if anything, football opened my eyes to the world, if you like. And mm -hmm. so that, that was sort of like an escape for me or not an escape, it was a, it was a way out of that way of life for me. Mm, no, it's, it's a great story. So after the, after the Northern Ireland, you know, you're representing at schoolboy level and my understanding is you represent at all levels, um, all the way, all the way through except senior level, but you then went to the UK. Was that first with, uh, QPR? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I went, um, we played, uh, I played two seasons for this, the Northern Ireland schoolboys. And I was very fortunate that <clears throat> the first year, um, there's a, a competition called the Adidas Victory Shield. It's still going today. Um, it's all the home nations, so Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England. Um, and that was a big thing back when we were up because it was the first schoolboy international games that was shown live on Sky TV. So it was on a Friday night. And, um, it was big, big things for us as kids. But again, from there, you had all the um, scouts from all the... Uh, Premier League Championship, all the clubs was there. Excuse me. We played, Northern Ireland played the Republic of Ireland every year in a traditional game called the Wilkinson Sword uh, Shield. Um, and Wilkinson Sword is the, the razor blades, which yeah. I actually need now. So. Um, but we, we played a game in, uh, down in Dublin um, at UCD, the University College Dublin. Um, and it was nil-nil. And it was pouring down rain and it was probably the worst game of football you'll ever come across like under 15 schoolboys pissing down rain in, in middle of ireland horrible anyway we come out after the game and the the academy director of queen's park rangers a guy called chris keeler was at the game um and the scout a guy called ray murder was there as well and they basically said that they want me to go to uh, qpr and that there'd be a contract for me there. So a couple of weeks later, we played Wales. And again, both of them come to the game. And then after the game, there yeah, we made the, um, it was coming up to the Easter school holidays, I think it was. So I went across to QPR. Um, we had a lot of, there was a few other Northern Ireland lads there at the time, a guy called Richard Graham. His was, that brother, a, was that a big thing for your family to say, yeah, you can go even across to QPR just to like, that's a big step, isn't it, from the village? From Yeah, no one had done it before, Craig. It was uh, unknown, really. Mm. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, my dad has got no interest in football whatsoever. Like, you know, the first time he ever saw me playing football was for Northern Ireland against Wales um, in that game with the QPR academy director was there. And I remember we came out after the game and I was talking to my uncle about, about the game. Again, that finished nil-nil. 
um, had a chance to score and should have scored. But I was talking to my uncle about the game and what happened, and I said to my dad, "What do you think?" And he said, "Oh, I think that the grandstand needs a new roof." <laughs> that was the builder. So for me, that was brilliant, Craig, because there was no pressure whatsoever at home on you need yeah. to do this. It was just for me that was real, and I was doing what I wanted to do, and my uncle was helping me every step of the way. Mm. Uh, so when when I went across to to QPR on trial, come back, and they offered me a contract. Um, again, going back to the political thing. Um, there was a sort of a reaction within the family as to how people would see or would react to this, that I was signing for Rangers. Mm-hmm. Even though Glasgow Rangers was in, in Scotland and Queen's Park Rangers was in London. Okay, because- take a step back. Glasgow Rangers is a Protestant club. Celtic is a Catholic club. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So again, using the, the political um, angle, there was a bit of a, <laughs> a few questions from my family about What's everyone going to think now? You're signing for Rangers, but it's nothing to do with Rangers. It's Queens Park Rangers, it's a club in London, West London. Mm. Um, so anyway, that was that was in 1995. I'd signed the contract. Um, so you, how old are you at this stage, Tess? Sorry, that was 1996. I was 16. Um, come, yeah, just I was about to finish school. I was finishing school in the May, um, end of May, start of June. And then 1st of July, I was starting pre-season in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the family, look, it was great, Craig. I'd signed a five-year contract, um, one-year YTS. And then from after my YTS, I was starting £250 a week, which you know, was probably more than a lot of the men around the village was probably earning. That was a good wage back then. Um, so... My mom and dad and myself flew across to QPR to sign the contract. Um, QPR was playing Wolves. I signed on the pitch. Um, Stuart Houston was the manager at the time. Um, QPR just got relegated out of the Premier League uh, the season before under Ray Wilkins. Um, Stuart Houston and Bruce Raker come in. Um, yeah, we flew across and. My mum and dad stayed for two or three days and then they flew back to Ireland. And then that was it. I was there in London um, by myself. I left a village of 240 people. Um, mm. And there's probably more people living on my street in London than lived in my whole village. And who did you live with? We billeted out or? Yeah, so the club was great. Um, the club had a, a lot of host families um, and they, they, where they could, they, they uh, put you in with someone of your. Heritage. So I was very fortunate to live with a lady who had an Irish heritage um, from Kerry. Um, and there was another big goalkeeper who came across from Dublin as well. So his name is Barry Andrews. Myself and Barry lived with Pauline um, and her son, Thomas, um, who's a really good friend of mine still to this day. So we had a great digs. We had a great environment. Um, the club was great in that respect, looking out for us. Um, it was literally... 10 minute walk to the training ground where we were living. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was everything that the club had done for us as kids in terms of integrating into the club, into London was, was fantastic. Um, but you know, we were young boys. We were, you know, like I say, we, I come from a very small village. My only focus at that time was to make it as a footballer. So we'd get up in the morning, walk to the training ground, have breakfast at the training ground, do our jobs. 
So back then it was still the apprentice schemes. Yeah. So we had to clean boots. Um, we had to sweep out the changing rooms. We had to clean the baths. We had to wash the showers. Um, my job was the boot room. So basically in the morning I would do all the, do my pros boots. So I looked after Trevor Sinclair um, and the youth team manager, a guy called Warren Neal. He's a great guy, um, taught me a lot. And then after training, we'd wait for the uh, first team to finish. Um, the boys had different change rooms that they had to um, clean out. So the pros would basically come in, they'd just take off their gear and throw it out. The apprentices had to separate it all, put it in the big skips, take it, load up the vans, take it back to the main ground and wash it. All the boots that was in the, the change rooms, they basically came and put them in the boot room. And then it was my job to bang off all the mud and scrub them down and then put them on the on the senior pros' pegs for the next morning when their apprentice would come in and wash them. And what did you, Tez, like, let's, let's just fast forward a little bit. Um, you're involved with Academy now. We'll, we'll come back to that full circle. But what did you think of that scheme? From a... It was great, Craig. Yeah. It was, at the time... <laughs> There's no pain like scrubbing a pair of metal studs in the middle of November, mm. the middle of winter in London, in a bucket of icy cold water, and you catch your knuckle on the stud. It's the worst pain in the world. <laughs> but it was great because there was a card at the end of it. So for us, it was <clears throat> the day you stop doing this is the day you become a pro. Mm. So for us, it was you, you wanted to get it over and done with as quickly as possible because <clears throat> it meant you were now a professional footballer. You didn't have to do it anymore. Yeah. The other great thing that, that did, Craig, was it, it created that camaraderie with that group of boys. So if I look back now and you're talking 24 years ago, Alvin, Bob, Carlos Brown, Leon Jean, William Purser, Richard Graham, um, all them boys that was in the team, Richard Langley, Paul Hart, like, that's 24 years ago, and I'm still in contact with them now. Mm. Because we were all in it together. And you come in in the morning, and someone might have been running late, someone might be, whatever it might be. So you give them a hand. She so said, right, I've only got two pairs of boots to polish. You've got four. Give me a pair of yours. I'll do that. Give me a hand with the change rooms. And you all mucked in together. The other good thing about the apprentice scheme back then was you did college one day a week. So we'd come in in the morning as a group. We'd do all our jobs together. So we'd do the changing rooms, we'd do the boot room, we'd clean the boots, we'd set out all the pros' kit, wash the baths. We'd go and train. For that hour and a half, two hours we're training, <clears throat> we'd kick lumps out of each other because we knew there's only so many people that's going to get a progression into the first team. So the competitiveness, the intensity of the training mm -hmm. was unbelievable. We came off the pitch, we did our jobs again, we're all friends again, back to, and then on the Wednesday, we all went to college together. So on the Tuesday, after we finished training, we'd go for a game of snooker and a game of pool or whatever, because we knew we had Wednesday off. Um, and then as we got a bit older, then we'd go for a drink and whatever. And then Wednesdays was college. So we'd all meet up, go to college, go and have lunch together, home again. What's and study college? We studied a GMVQ of leisure and tourism. Mm -hmm. um, it was a course run by the PFA. So we did our college with uh, West Ham and Chelsea. So 
what was great about that as well, Craig, was that everyone's in the same boat. So you got all the players from West Ham, Chelsea, John Terry, John Harley, um, all coming into um, college and everyone's got different stories of what's happening at their club. And then probably the, the end of that week or the next week, you're playing them in the, in the youth mm. league. So there's a real... I wouldn't say togetherness because obviously everyone's fighting for um, positions and it is a competitive environment that you're in. But it's a lot smaller than everyone thinks. And everyone thinks football is this massive, big world. But everyone knows everyone. And it's, it's small and you mix in the same circles. And, but for me, going back to what you were saying about that system of cleaning boots, and, and it, it taught me a lot about discipline, about time management, about respect, um, and how to treat people. Mm. Like for me, the pros that I was fortunate enough to clean their boots, Trevor Sinclair, um, is a wonderful man. Um, Warren Neal, as I said before, the youth team coach, great, fantastic person. I learned so much from him. But you looked at some of the other pros at the time that, you know, especially around Christmas. So at this time, we were on £40, £40 a week as a YT, as an apprentice. So what's that in today's money in Australia? $80, $80 a week. So we're living in London on $80 a week, possible. But it come Christmas and Normally, that's the time when the, the pros will give their players 100, 200, 300 pounds, depending on how well you've done. But we used to see some of the pros would give their, their apprentices 20 quid at Christmas. We used to think, oh, seriously? And these, these were players that were earning 10, 15,000 pounds a week. Mm. You know, so I remember Trevor, um, the first team was playing on Boxing Day. Um, so we had, we didn't. The youth team had a break over Christmas, so we used to just train. Um, so we got Christmas Day off, but we had to come in to clean the boots. So we thought, right, we'll all come in early, clean the boots, get out. But all the apprentices were all hanging around to see when the pros would come in to see what Christmas bonus we'd get. <laughs> uh, everyone's sort of hanging around and waiting. Oh. And mm -hmm. Trevor's come in, I've given him his boots. We had a quick chat, he's gone off, ran out on the training pitch. I thought, shit, he's forgot. So I'm hanging around. He's come back in after training. I've grabbed his gear, put it all away. Um, and he's drove off out the car park. And I thought, oh, shh, it's Christmas Day. He's, he's forgot. So anyway, I was walking out of the training ground. About two minutes later, he came flying back in. He had a big black Mercedes ML um, four-wheel drive thing. And he said, oh, you didn't think I forgot, did you? I said, oh, no, no. So I just had to go to the ATM. So he went to the ATM, got me five hundred pound out the bank. Wow! For me back then, that was, you know, that paid for my trip home to see my family. So wow, that's that a good man. Yeah, okay. a really good man. So to fast forward from there, it says you you do your apprenticeship. How do you get to Australia? <laughs> good question, Greg. Um, it's an interesting uh, time, when, especially now when we're talking, especially football in Australia, when we're talking about the the broadcast deal and things like that. So what happened at QPR, we, we gone into administration. Um, so the club had been run, uh, been running at a loss for a few years. Um, the chairman at the time, I think his name was Chris Wright. He owned Chrysler's records. Um, and he actually owned London Wasps as well. Mm -hmm. So Wasps, the, the rugby team was training at the same training ground as us, um, which was interesting when we come into the gym. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
the club had gone into administration. Um, we had been relegated out of the championship. Ian Holloway had taken over. Um, Jerry Francis had come back in. Um, so at that period of time, the managers that I worked with, as I said, was Stuart Houston, signed me, then Ray Harford and Vinnie Jones came in. <laughs> really? That's a story in itself. Yeah, Vinnie was our reserve team coach. Um, Ray Harford, bless him, he's dead now. He was a, was a top, top coach. Um, they left Jerry Francis and came back. Excuse me. And then Jerry went as director of football and Ian Holloway came in as a manager. So we, we got relegated under Ian. Um, I played the last game of the season. We played Wolves away at Molyneux. We drew 1-1. Um, I think Stevie Corrick actually played in that, that game as well for right. Wolves. Uh, so that was on the Sunday. On the uh, Wednesday, we, got, we had the meetings with the manager. And that was basically to get told if we were staying or leaving or what we were doing. <clears throat> on the bus on the way back on the Sunday, um, I had a chat with Ian Holloway and he said, look, we'll give you one more year's contract for next season. We've been relegated. We're going to build a young team. I want a lot of young players, hungry players. So, so you've, played, you've played first team at this stage, Chess, or? Yeah, So I played the last two games of that season. I played Stockport at home mm. and Wolves away. Mm. So on the Wednesday, I was actually walking into the manager's office thinking, well, the boss has told me I've got another year. So, you know, I felt confident walking in. Anyway, long story short, I walked into the uh, manager's office. There's a guy sitting there who I'd never seen before in my whole life. I've been to the club for five years. I'd never seen him. The manager, Ian Holly, was in the corner. Um, this guy asked me what my name was. So I said, Terry McFlynn. Um, he looked down his sheet, basically got a ruler, put a red line through my name and said, thank you very much for everything you've done for the club. Your time has come to an end. We wish you all the best, blah, blah, blah. So that was a bit of a shock. So yeah. I was like, oh, okay, well, where, where do we go from here? So to give you a bit of context behind it, that, that was at the time when ITV Digital um, had bought the rights for the Football League. And there was promises of all this uh, X hundred millions of dollars or pounds that was coming into the game. Clubs had basically budgeted that that money was coming in from the television. Um, ITV Digital as a platform collapsed and that money didn't eventuate. So on that day, there was 19 of us at QPR released on the same day. Uh, but bearing in mind, there's 72 league clubs in England outside of the Premier League. So it was the same at every club. Every club. <clears throat> there was tens and twenties of players getting released at every club. So all of a sudden, there's five, six, seven hundred players out of work. So from there, <clears throat> I ended up signing for a club called Woking in the conference. Uh, Woking was a club that um, had a good reputation in non-league football. Um, there was no money in the football league at the time. So I, I actually ended up earning a lot more money playing in the conference than I would have done if I even if I had stayed at QPR. Um, so from there, the club was ambitious trying to get into the football league. Um, the manager at the time, a guy called Colin Lippiot, he had signed about 35 players. Um, so it was basically, he had this rotation system where we were playing in cup competitions, league cup, uh, the league. And I just wasn't playing as much as I, I would have wanted to. You know yourself, Craig, as a player, you want to play. Uh, um, Colin got sacked and another manager called Jeff Chappell came in. Jeff's a sort of a big name in the non-league football. Um, he basically came in and said, look, I've got to cut the wage bill. Um, so we can want, do it one or two ways. We can work out a settlement and you can go. 
or you can dig your heels in and I can make life very difficult for you. So I said, mate, I'm not here to cause anybody any problems. I just want to play football. So he wrote a number on a piece of paper and said, look, I'll write that check if you want to take it. So I took it. And a good friend of mine, Gareth Graham, um, was at Crystal Palace and then at Brentford. Um, he found himself in the same situation after the collapse of ITV Digital. He was at another conference club called Margate. And he rang me and said, look, we're looking for a midfielder. Do you fancy it? So I said, oh, James, look, it's a bit far. Margate's right down the bottom of um, England. I said, mate, I'm not sure. I'm going to keep look for something around London. And he said, mate, we train in London. All the players live in London. We only go to Margate for the games. So, Craig, it was perfect. Mate, we trained in London, um, and we just drove down to Margate for the games. For the away games, we used to get the train everywhere. Um, so, again, that was a great, great group of boys. From there, I ended up, I went to Morecambe. And the story behind that was uh, the manager, Jim Harvey, was the assistant manager of Northern Ireland. So I was still playing for the national team at this time. Mm. So every time, every time we'd meet up for a, a camp, Jimmy over a coffee or a beer or whatever, he'd say, you've got to come and play for me. You've got to come and play for me. So anyway, there was a couple of things going on at Margate, which didn't sit well with me. Um, and I asked the manager if I could leave. He said that... Uh, uh, he wanted me to stay. So Jimmy put a bid in, um, the club accepted it, and then I went to Morecambe. So I was up there for uh, two seasons, 18 months, I think, season and a half. Um, and Morecambe was owned by a guy called Peter McGuigan, um, who owned Umbro in in England. Right, yeah. Uh, okay. So the, the club, the facilities was great. The, the little stadium they had at Christie Park, um, it was old, but it was good. Um, Peter's now actually built Morecambe a brand new, um, I think it's 12,000 all-seater stadium, the Globe Arena. He sold Umbro to Nike Global. Um, so Nike Global actually owns Umbro now for, I think it's 200 and something million pounds. Um, so he built the club a new stadium, um, give them 10 million pounds, and he's the executive chairman or honorary chairman or something now. So. Um, but they were great people, Craig real genuine good good people um and then jimmy's health wasn't great and there was a few other things going on at the club um my wife emma we were together by this point um we weren't married at that time we were engaged but emma wanted to come back to australia and the a league was just starting at the time and that was back in 2004 mm -hmm. so i i just wrote an email to all the a league clubs and asked for a trial and um Sydney FC was the only one that replied to me. Um, basically, yeah. said, uh, you've got to pay your own airfare and your own accommodation, but yeah, you can come for a week's trial. And You remember who wrote back to you? It was actually Lou Sticker. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, Lou, Lou was an agent. <coughs> he still is an agent. <coughs> Excuse me. Lou was the agent at the time with Walter Bunio, who was putting the club together. Yeah. Um, Andy Harper was the CEO. Um, who I went to school with, good mate of mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ian Crook was the assistant coach. And at this point in time when I received the email, they didn't have a head coach. So um, by the time I actually boarded the plane to fly to Australia, Pierre Lebarski had been appointed head coach. Mm. Uh, so funny story about how I actually, the, the um, plane journey. So I was flying out on the Friday to arrive into Sydney on the Sunday. Um, thought, right, I'll arrive Sunday. The trial was starting on the Monday. So, you haven't been to Australia before? 
I had never been to Sydney. I'd been to Australia. Um, with Emma. Australia. Yeah, with Emma. Um, so we're sitting on the tarmac on, a, on Friday, as you say, and the plane started shaking. <laughs> this isn't good. So we sat there for about another 40 minutes, and then the captain came on to say that the baggage handler had reversed his truck into one of the engines, and it was damaged. So we had to get off the plane. Um, so we were all checked in. We were still in transit. So they took us to a hotel, and the, plane, the flight was delayed 24 hours. So we flew out Saturday. So I arrived in Sydney on Monday morning at 6 a.m., and my trial was starting at Park Lee, Valentine Sports Park, at 10 a.m. Ah. So I had four hours to get from the airport. I'd never been to Sydney in my life. No idea where I was going. It was back in the days, there was no GPS. This was 2005. There was no yeah. GPS. So I've got into a taxi at um, Sydney Airport with a, an address on a piece of paper. Showed it to the taxi driver. And he said, oh, it's too far. It's too far. I said, man, you're a taxi. We have to go there. So... Yeah. We're driving along, God knows what way we went, but I just saw the meter keep picking up, ticking, <laughs> ticking. Anyway, we got to Valentine Sports Park. Now, I'd come from various different clubs in England where you had your own facility, you had your training ground, you went in, you have a reception. You've got <clears throat> So I've turned up Valentine Sports Park, walked into the reception area um, and asked uh, where the kit room was. And the lady who was there, Looking back now, obviously, Sydney FC was only renting the space off them, so that she was looking at me like I had two heads. So yeah. she said, oh, kit room, what kit room? Probably said, didn't understand you either. Yeah, that's a, big, that's a good point. So anyway, long story short, I ended up um, finding Joey Neuter, um, who was a kit man at that time. Um, and still involved now at Western Sydney? Yep. Western Sydney. Joey was with Sydney for 10, 11 years, I think. Yeah, we worked together, and then he went across to Western Sydney. Um, so I found Joey um, to introduce myself. Look, my name's Terry. I'm from Ireland. I'm here for a trial. So he said, "Okay, yep, all the best. Wish you ever, all the best for your trial." So I can have some kit, and he said, "No, no, we don't give trialists kit." So I was thinking, "Okay, what happens here?" Because I had no kit. So I had my boots, my shin pad, but I had no kit. <laughs> So there's a little shop, if anyone who knows Football New South Wales or Park Lee, there's a little shop, soccer store, I think it's called. So I went in there and bought a T-shirt, a pair of shorts, a pair of socks. And that was my training kit for the week at, at Sydney FC. So I was staying in the accommodation blocks at Park Lee. Mm. So every day after training, I'd wash my, my kid in the shower and hang it out over the balcony to dry for the next day. And uh, yeah, that's how I come to Australia, mate. And that's a great story. I mean, did you get signed after that week? No, so after the first week, uh, there was 12 trialists that started that week with us. So the team would train by themselves, um, the signed players, and then the trialists would train um, with Pierre and Crookie in the afternoons. We did a morning session, then the, the players that were signed would train, and then the trialists would do a second session in the afternoon. So by the end of the first week, um, there was nine, I think, released. So that left three of us. There was a guy, Kevin Nelson, uh, from Trinidad, Tobago, myself, and a guy called Boris from Serbia. Um, I'm not sure whatever happened to Boris, but on the Monday on the, of the following week, Dave Carney and Matthew Bingley turned up. So Bing, uh, Bingers got signed on the Tuesday, <clears throat> which meant we knew there was only two positions left. So there was Dave Carney, myself, Kevin Nelson, and Boris. Um, 
Dave Carney got signed. Oh, sorry. Boris is club asked for money. So that basically ruled him out of it. So it was between Kevin Nelson, who's a striker, Carnes, who's a winger, and myself as a midfielder. So as a trialist, you just try and do the maths. You try and look around and say how many midfielders they got, how many. So at that time, we had Steve Corica, Ufuk Tali, uh, Matthew Bingley. Um, so I thought, yeah, there could be a chance for me here. So long story short, by the end of the first uh, second week, <clears throat> Ian Crook called myself and Dave Carney um, for a meeting and said, look, we're going to offer you a contract. Um, mm. It's a one-year contract. Um but we're going to put a couple of provisions in there. You need to, both of you need to lose five kilos before we go to Dubai. So this was in February and we're going to Dubai in April for pre-season um, training. So that was one of the special conditions in our first contract, me and Dave Carney, we had to lose five kilos before we went to pre-season. So we were in every morning <clears throat> in the fat club um, with Darren Wells, the fitness coach back then um, running and then we joined him with the team and, but it was easy to, to lose a weight, Craig, with the heat and the, the intensity at, at which Pierre trained. And, um, so, yeah, that was, that was how I signed it at Sydney FC, mate. Did you have a plan B? So the plan B was <clears throat> try harder at plan A. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is good. Uh, it was, look, to be honest. If they would have brought you in and said, okay, we can't fit you in, did you have another option in yeah. Australia? So just before... Um, I got the letter or the email back from Lou Sticker. So what I did, I sent the email to all the clubs on, uh, in Australia asking for a trial. I also sent the same email to all the registered agents on the FIFA website, mm. Australian registered agents. A guy called Richard Rodsky um, replied to me. Um, he's, an, he's an agent from Melbourne. Um, and he basically replied to me and said, look, I've never heard of you. The A-League, there's a quote on foreigners, they're signing proven foreigners. Um, it's going to be difficult for you to get in the A-League. I can help you get a, a VPL team, so a Victorian Premier League team. And then from there, we can work on a plan to get into the A-League. So I thought, okay. So my fallback plan was to go and sign for a club called Richmond in the um, Victorian Premier League, who at that time was coached by Dean Hennessy. So part of that story is Richard was the only agent that replied to me um, on the FIFA website. So when Sydney wanted to sign me and made me that offer, um, I asked Richard to be my agent and he was my agent for the rest of my career. Yeah. Um, that's, I remember you always stayed with him. So loyalty, yeah. I know loyalty has been very important for you. You always show loyalty. Did that come from, from your upbringing? Yeah. 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 It, it, come, it comes from good moral values um, that my family instilled in me um, and always treat people with respect mm. uh, and be loyal to people who is in your close circle. Mm. Um, but once someone um, not crosses you, but once you, you lose trust with someone or, or lose um, that respect for someone, it's, I find it hard to, um, reverse that um i think it's my mom had a great saying that manners is easily carried uh, you know and i think it's it costs nothing to to be mannerly and i remember you know when we were at qpr the, the dinner lady um doreen the kit man big bob um, the chief executive clive 
for me, everyone within a football club is the same, and everyone has an important role. And and I remember, you know, Trudy at, at CBNP. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with, with someone one day, and they, they said, "Oh well, she's just a laundry lady." Mm. And I said, "Well, that's if she didn't do her job, the game on the weekend doesn't happen." Because the players have got no kit to wear. So everybody that's involved has got such an important role and they need to be respected. And and for me, loyalty was, was a very big, is a very big thing, Craig. Um, I think, you know, yourself, you know, we worked together for a, a period of time. Mm. We had a family tragedy um, back in September 2005. The A-League had just started at this point. So the A-League started in August. We were playing Central Coast at home. Um, my aunt and uncle was killed in a car crash back in Ireland. Mm. And uh, when we took to the to the field to play, the Cove, which was, is a supporter group at, at Sydney FC, and um, bearing in mind, the club is playing probably its sixth or seventh competitive fixture at this point. And they had a, a big banner um, in the Cove and it said, Terry, in times of need, the Cove is with you. Right. So for me... I always said at that point I'd never play for another club against Sydney yeah. FC. Um, and then you know, fast forward 10 years later, I had, had the opportunity when I was leaving the club to sign for other AD clubs, but no, nah, it just wasn't the right thing to do. I'm, you know, I'm a man of my word and um, that was the... Yeah, I, I, can, I can vouch for that. A lot of people, people say these things, but I saw Terry uh, in very difficult times and... You know, I saw you in very difficult times and, and very good times, and you're the same person. In fact, I always, um, I always tell a story that, you know, people probably know in 2013, I had problems with my heart. And uh, there was only a couple of people that came to visit me from the club. And, uh, and that was not that, I, not that I, I thought they should, but it was just the character, and um, and that was was you yourself uh, and um, and Dave Mason. Yeah, um, I think Dave probably made me feel a bit sicker, but <laughs> <laughs> no. But Mason Mason was uh, was very good of him to do that. But but you came with me, and I, I'll tell you a funny story about that because actually uh, Tez was with me when the surgeon came in. Do you remember Tez? And, yeah, and. Um, he hadn't seen me since the surgery and I basically had this, uh, yeah, it was very unusual what had happened to my heart. And um, the surgeon sat down and I said, oh, Tez, you stay. And, uh, and he spoke to me. And when he left, I said, Tez, I don't think that sounded too good. Do you remember? And you, and you said, yeah, no, I don't think it was. So, so it was actually, you know, you, do, you wouldn't want anyone, you know, better with you than uh, Terry McFlynn at those times. But but yeah, always your character has, has stood fast. And I would expect your parents didn't care if you're a, a football player or, or, a, or married into royalty or, or anything, would they? they? They probably just want you to be a good person. Yeah, look, you know, as I said before, my, my mum and dad had absolutely no interest in football whatsoever. Um, for, for them, it was just always about being happy. Mm. You know, you're doing what you wanted to do. And, um, there was times when, when I started playing soccer back in the village, um, you know, me and my uncle, we did get a lot of, not stick, but it, it was sort of frowned upon. Um, again, going back to the political thing that it wasn't the thing to do was mm -hmm. to turn your back on, on Gaelic football and, and play soccer. At that time, soccer was seen as a more of a Protestant sport. Um, 
So, um, you know, it would have been easy for my mum and dad to say, listen, stop playing soccer. It is too much issue with the family and there's too much, um, you know, we don't need any hassle. But they knew that's, that's what made me happy. And they knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, so that, that gave me the courage, I suppose, Craig, um, to continue with it. And it gave me the drive and the will to succeed at it. That mm-hmm. a lot of the people that frowned upon it and didn't, I suppose, had an opinion that it was, that it was wrong. For me, I used that as motivation to prove them wrong and to prove them that that's what I want to do. And no one was going to stand in my way of doing it. And, and again, to, the, to your point about how I end up in Australia, as a kid growing up in Northern Ireland with a dream to play professional football, Australia was never on my radar to play professional football. Mm. So to sign for a club in the English Premier League that was relegated into the championship, to be there for five years, to then all of a sudden drop four divisions and be playing in the English Conference, I could easily have given up then. Mm. I could easily have said, oh, it was ITV Digital's fault. It was this, it was this manager didn't like me. This coach didn't like me. But at the end of the day, there was only one person that was going to hold me back, and that was myself. And you know, I wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. So when the opportunity come up to come to Australia to a professional league, then I jumped at it. And like I said, we were. Yeah. And how many games uh, did you end up playing for Sydney FC? It was a lot. Not many good ones, but. <laughs> no, there was many good ones. I remember. I was there. 214 in total. But probably even kind of good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many, as a player, um, how many championships? Two? Two as a player? Two as a player, one premiership, um, two championships as an administrator, two premierships, uh, and one FFA Cup. Yeah, and I was with you when we won 9-10, and you were actually captain that day. Um, we'd, we'd lost Steve Corica, who's now the, now the Sydney FC uh, he was he was captain, yeah. So we'd lost him uh, through to injury, and you were the captain. But I remember a very nice moment that you um, had him on stage, and also Johnny Aloisi um, yeah. to actually uh, lift that trophy. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah that was- look, that, that <clears throat> I was sort of Stephen Bradbury that that year, Craig. Um, the, we got announced. Stevie Corrigo was obviously the, the team captain, and he was our leader throughout the whole year. And, we lost Stevie. I think it was the last game of the season. Um, yeah, he did a hand, yeah, no, he did a, a very high up hamstring, but um, yeah, he took it off the bone. That wasn't my issue. <laughs> Stevie was just old. Sorry, Steve. He <laughs> <laughs> was, was very old then, but um, now nah, he was great, Stevie. And like you say, myself and Johnny was his uh, vice captains at the time. Um, Johnny, I think against Wellington in the semi final, I think Johnny. Went down injured as well, so he was going to miss the grand final. So I was a captain on the day. Um, but our whole, as you know, you know, you were part of it, big, big part of it. Our whole motivation to win that was for Stevie because he had told us yeah. earlier in the week that that was it, he was retiring. He wasn't going to try and come back from the hamstring. Um, that, you know, he, was, he probably only had one season left in him, if that at all, but the, the road back was too, too difficult. So our whole motivation was to win it for Stevie. And then um, at the end of the end of the game, um, I remember obviously we won the game on penalties. Bjorn scored the, the, the last penalty, and then as you know yourself, you've been part of a lot of 
celebrations. There's a bit of a chaos and trying to get the boys into position to go and actually collect the trophy. And um, Angie Laddie, who was the uh, operations lady at the time, um, was trying to get us all in and yeah, to get us into position. And um, Mesa was there, football manager as well. And um, I said, look, I'm not picking up a trophy without Stevie. Mm. And I will, you know, he's not on the run sheet to come on the stage. And I said, look, it's not about run sheets. It's about doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah, that was a special moment for me, Craig. Obviously, 2005, joining the club. Stevie was probably one of the first people I met at the club. Um, and then he scored the first goal for Sydney FC in the first grand final when we won it. Mm. Um, he scored the first goal for Sydney FC in the Champions League against Shanghai Shenhuawei. So to stand on stage with him and lift the trophy was a, was a special moment. Um, so yeah, that, that was that was pretty. And another special. and another gentleman is uh, yeah. a good man, and and he's gone on to be a very good coach and and won yeah. a won a championship um, um, himself. There was a lot of good people in that team. I remember it was it was Clint Bolton's last uh, last game. Uh, yeah. for CFC, the goalkeeper who was who was tremendous. Um, and, and another very good person, uh, Tony Popovich was assistant coach. We had a, a great head coach who was a, a wonderful person again. Um, uh, uh, Vichka, um, uh, and he was he was just a, a, a lovely man. That still still I get a message from to this day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I speak to him quite regularly. And in my previous role at Sydney FC, is a where I was heavily involved in recruitment. Any players from that that part of the world, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Bulgaria, anywhere on it, I would always sign out Vija for his opinion, and he'd always give you an honest opinion. And but you're right, what a an absolute gentleman of the game, and um, that team, you know, like you say, Clint Bolton, Shannon Cole, Simon Colosimos, Stephen Keller, Pune, Stuart Michalik, myself, Carl Kissel, Steve Corica, Alex Bross, Steve uh, Mark Bridge, Steve, Mark Bridge, yeah, Mark Bridge. Um, and the no. young ones too that are now there. Uh, well, you've now gone on to success. Ryan Grant, Matt German. Yeah, Ryan Grant was coming through. Matt German. They they all came through probably the next season. Mm. Even though they played a few games that season, they started to play a lot the next season because, like you said, Clint Bolton left. Uh, Simon Colosimo left. Carl Kissel left. Stevie retired, um, and Johnny left. John Aloisi left as well. He went to uh, Melbourne Heart. Yeah, we lost a lot. Yeah. Lost a lot, so five out of that starting, <clears throat> starting eleven, if you like, for that whole season, was gone. So the, the next season was difficult, mm. um, and that showed in the, the results. Not so much in the performances, but more the results because we went the first ten games without a win. Yeah, four points after ten games. Yeah, yeah. So that was a real difficult period for the club. Mm. Uh, performances was good, but we just didn't know how to win. Because we had too many, not we had too many kids. We had a lot of people that could perform at a good level, but didn't know how to actually win a game of football. And, mm -hmm. and I know that makes doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but there's people who won't perform that well, but they just know how to win. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you, yeah. some of them. I remember year. Do you remember that? Um, had one of the funniest things. It wasn't funny at the time. But for some reason, someone came up with the idea, and it wasn't part of the the footballing department. They were to go to Terrigal to yes. get away. Yeah, we're told to go to, away to Terrigal to get away to you know to uh, 
to get things back on track. But we weren't allowed to, the, the, the directive was we weren't allowed to do any football. Remember? Yeah. 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 So hang on, and we're in the middle of the season now, and we're going away for a few days. We're not going to do any football. No one's really organised too much other sort of stuff. And um, I remember you guys had a the players had a meeting with a team, the team builder. Um, but it was funny. It was a it was a funny uh, issue. And, and the coach didn't want to do it. The assistant coaches. I don't think anyone really wanted to do, but. Uh, it was a crazy three days, Craig, because we, no one really, as you say, no one really knew what we were going up there for. Uh, <laughs> we went, we went to Terry, we went to Star of the Sea, which, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know, is a luxurious five-star resort <laughs> in, in on, on the central coast in New South Wales. It's an absolutely beautiful place, somewhere where you go with your family to have a, a an amazing experience, not a group of thirty footballers, who. The last thing they want to be doing is cooked up in an apartment block all day. Four so, points out of ten games. Four points out of ten games. Scared to show your face in public. <laughs> and here we are in a five-star luxurious resort. So I think the first day we got there, we had a game of touch rugby on the Haven. Yeah, well, I had to organise something without... I remember it's my job to organise a few things. We we stopped on the way to play laser tag. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we just, All the boys just sat in the corner. No one actually played. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were like, we were able to play touch football. No, it was uh, yeah. it's crazy. The, we, the boys were all saying, "Listen, we got four points from the first ten games, so four points out of a possible thirty, and we're playing laser tag." <laughs> it's just just a different level. I think we ended up. Yeah, we didn't make the finals that year, but uh, we did turn it around somewhat. But um, it was yeah, back after the season, we, we we were better. It couldn't have been much worse, but we were better here. Yeah, no, it was an interesting time. Now, we talk a lot about transition from player to um, from player to retirement. Uh, I think you're one of the better ones that have done that very, very well. Uh, I will also vouch with you because you you did have offers from other clubs because I remember uh, I I was involved with some clubs that did want you. And uh, but you did. You're always one uh, from very early on that we used to discuss with uh, things. Um, you had ideas about football, about the well-being of footballers. It was very big in your your focus from very early on that you were you were talking about this. So to go into that role, um, you could have gone into coaching. I mean, you still have been doing coaching, but it was into that administrative role uh, very much. So do you want to talk a you know a little bit about that as well? That trend, mainly about that transition, I suppose. Yeah, look, the transition was um, <clears throat> it's never easy, you know, mm. and it's. I think I've I've coped with it pretty well because I think I've always been very realistic, Craig, in everything I've done. Um, you know, I've never been the best player in any team, so I've always had to plan for the future. And you know yourself, you were a massive help for me with my studies um, when I was studying. So I I did a masters of coach education while I was still playing. Um, and the reason behind that was I didn't want to just go and do my coaching badges come out the other end of it with a certificate and say I'm a coach because you're not I actually wanted to learn how to coach people and how to actually find out how to build teams how to build cultures how to create environments where people would listen to me as a coach you know there's one thing saying run to that cone and back you know why what am I doing that for what's what's the reason so I went and did the masters of coaching 
my thesis was developing a high performance environment through the organizational culture. So that really sparked something inside of me, the, the cultural element of it, the cultural side of it, um, the well-being of people, the welfare of players, staff, and the culture which exists within an organization and how the culture can actually drive the well-being and the health of, of the people within it, which in turn maximizes performance and output. Um, so I'd finished my studies. I'd retired from playing. Um, the plan at that point was actually to take a bit of time off. Um, you know, I'd had a conversation with yourself. Uh, you were working at Rugby League at the time, New South Wales Rugby League. I went and met with uh, Dave Trodden, um, Derek Melton. Um, so I was actually looking at other stuff outside of football. Mm. Um, Graham Arnold was about to be appointed head coach of Sydney FC. Um, Scott Barler, the chairman, rang me and said, look, can you meet with, with Graham Arnold? Um, so I went and met with Graham. Um, we had a discussion about Sydney FC. Obviously, I'd been there for, at that point, 10 years. Um, everything, basically, that I felt was, and it was only, this was only my opinion to Graham, good about the club, bad about the club, um, indifferent, things that we could change, things that, you know, how far could the club go? Um, we had a discussion and 99 out of 100 things we thought the same on um, about having good people involved in the organization, building a sustainable culture, um, which then is part of a succession plan, which is part of enhancing the culture building. Um, so basically, Graham rang me two, three days later. He went on holiday, rang me from Hawaii and said, look, I've been speaking to the club. I want you as part of my staff. He said, I don't know what role yet, but um, I need you to be to be part of the staff. So we had a few more conversations about what it was, it was clear there was no coaching role. And at this point, I wasn't fit. I wasn't my heart. My passion wasn't in coaching. My passion was in this, like creating a culture, creating an environment. Um, so when we started to bullet point what the job would actually look like, it focused a lot around the welfare side of things. So um, I became the, the, I was appointed general manager of player welfare at the club. So began working very closely with Gabby Ripple with a PFA. Um, the younger players was more so about what a footballer is. So <clears throat> letting them understand, letting them know, creating a, a learning platform for them to say, well, this is what you're getting into. This is the environment you are because young players look at Cristiano Ronaldo, they look at Messi, they look at Pogba and they see the Lamborghinis and the Rolex watches and the diamond earrings. They don't see polishing boots in the middle of November when no one can see you. So it's actually saying, look, your expectations are here, but at the minute your ability is here. So how do you balance that? How do you balance out where your ability is and what you can expect from yourself? And, when your ability starts to outweigh your expectations, then you need to drag that becomes self-confidence and all the things that we talk about mm. performance, uh, anxiety and different pieces that then fits in and around it. With the older players, it was more preparing them for what I was going through, preparing them for the transition away from the game, having a plan. Um, but probably the biggest part of it, Craig was, um, the recruitment side of it 
was, and you know yourself because you were, you were there for a period of time and you've been at other clubs, when clubs sign players, it's very much always signed this great player. Look what he can do with the ball. When does he get here? Oh, he's getting here next week. When's his ITC? When can he play? But, yep, brilliant. There's no thought or no... Um, what's the right word? No emphasis put on his family. And where's he going to live? How's he going to get the training? Can he speak English? What does his wife want to do? What does his, does his kids need school? So the biggest part of my role was that induction and that relocation of players into the club. So, and we did it in a staggered approach. So we obviously go through the competencies, hard skills. Can the boy play? Yep. Running through the competency reports. Yes, he can play in the style of play that we want to play. Then we did all the character checks, background checks. Yep, it's a good person to fit into the culture that we have. Then I would make a uh, series of uh, phone calls over probably a 10-day to two-week period, stalling the player from arriving. All the time we were building up a portfolio of what the player's life looked like. So when they arrived, I knew the religion. I knew uh, if they're vegetarian. I knew the wife's name, the kids' names, the ages, dates of birth, what schools, um, if they needed to go to school, what areas they wanted to live in. So I could build up a little dossier, hand it to them at the airport and say, right, from all the conversations, I know you like, you want to be near the beach. You want to be less than 20 minutes to the training ground. Your wife's a hairdresser. She wants to work here. You've got two kids. One's eight, one's 10. These are the schools in the area. These are the times we set up the meetings. So it was basically so that all that noise, as we call it, outside stuff was taken away from the player so they could focus purely on the football. And then it was integrating the families into the football club as well. Mm. So, for example, we would have Milos Ninkovic, for just an example. We'd turn, I'd turn my computer on in the morning. It would pop up, Diana Ninkovic birthday. You go on into Flora Centre, a bunch of flowers from Sydney FC. Mm. Then there's a connection and you're actually starting to build something so that, and it's twofold. There is a care obviously for the family of the player because the way we, the approach we took was, yes, we're signing a player for the team, but we're signing a family. So we're actually asking a man to bring his wife and his kids to the other side of the world on our word. So we're saying, I'll come and join this great football club. You do this year. He has to take a word for it. So we have to uphold our side of the bargain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the, the welfare side of things on that crew. We were the first club. It's so important, Tez, and this is what people, this is how people should look after people in their business. Hmm. And so sport, one of the issues we talk about a little bit in sport is that we don't realize that players are people first yeah. and happy players play better. And it's, and it's like um, the management of the person in sport and the well-being and welfare in a lot of respects is, has been put to the side. But yeah. also in the corporate world, I think we can go a lot further into this, what you're talking about. This is how you look after people. Because at the end of the day, by minimizing that noise, we are going to maximize the performance of, of people in any part of life. 100%, Craig. And the, you get your return from a corporate point of view or from a, a football point of view, sport, and the performance of the individuals. And like, when, obviously it takes a little bit of time to implement and get it all in place. And there's some 
people that are resistant to it and eventually they move on because the club moves on without them. Mm. Fall by the wayside. So probably the 16-17 season, 2016-17 season, when we won the premiership, we won the championship, we got beaten in the FFA Cup final and we lost one game the whole season. <clears throat> that was the output that, you know, every single player was playing for the club and they were playing because there was a genuine care for the players. Like we brought in a chef um, and a lot of people will say, well, it's, it's not a big, big deal having a chef. But for us, it wasn't a matter of just bringing a chef into the club and saying, boys, we're going to give you lunch every day. We needed the chef to be part of the team. So, again, a lot of things was, was budget-driven. Um, as you know yourself in, in sport, a lot of things that in performance we see as necessities from an admin finance point of view is seen as a, a nice-to-have or a luxury. So for us, it was so important on two aspects to have food after training. One, as you know better than me, nutrition straight after training is so important. So that was the biggest one. The second one for us was we had a culture and an environment of family. So when we actually sat down and said, well, what's the, the thing, the most important thing that all families do is they eat together. Mm. So this becomes so important for us. So it we interviewed probably four or five different chefs until we find the right one. And again, all the, the, the food that we got provided was on a contra deal. So we didn't have the budgets to do it. The chef himself, when, he, when we picked the one we wanted, we worked out that we could get, if we could get all the players to pay $20 a week each and all the staff as well, that would cover his labor, cover his time. Um, the young players would pay $10 a week and they did the dishes. So for the first month, um, Alex Bross was a captain and he's a leader of men. He's a great, great man. For the first month, we said to Broski, we're going to have a chef to come in. If you boys are happy with it after a month. So again, it's, it's this inclusion and um, ownership on the playing group. If you're happy with it, it's going to cost $20 a week. So $80 a month. Um, for all players and all staff to continue. We said for the first month, we'll cover it. So me and Graham Arnold paid the first month for the chef. By about middle of the second week, Broski come and said, mate, the boys love the food. It's unbelievable. And George, the chef, is a, a football tragic. He's a football person. So I remember one, one day we were playing, I think we were playing Brisbane Roar, I think it was the next day. And we we're walking out on the training pitch and, uh, and he said, George, are you ready to fire the boys up for tomorrow? And he said, yeah, coach, I'm ready. He said, no, I'm serious. You're doing the team talk. <laughs> so he said, what? So the day before home games, we'd do the set pieces presentations at the training ground. And so we'd had lunch. Boys are getting ready for the set pieces. And Arnie said, um, boys, George has got something to tell you for tomorrow. And... He, he delivered this speech about we're a family, we're together, what it means to play for this club, what it means to play for the person next to you. Look to your left, look to your... And it was so inspiring that you actually sat back and said, well, everybody is in this together. It's not about the players. It's not about the coach. It's, it's, it's a unity. We're all in this together. And for me, one of the most special moments, apart from the 2010 Grand Final, was after that 2017 grand final we won we got all the staff 
every staff member at the club a championship medal. And Broski, mm. who's South American, as you know, Uruguayan, George, the chef's Chilean. Broski presented uh, George with his medal in the kitchen and he was crying. Yeah. You know, he started, started talking in Spanish. And, mm. But it's them little things, Craig, that, you know, it, it doesn't, it, what I'm trying to say is the little thing that got $200 for a medal, mm. that'll stay with him forever. Yeah. And that, that moment is that's real culture and that's real strength in an organization. And, you know, and again, it's when everyone feels part of it, they'll go above and beyond that, that shared purpose and, and corporations need to know this as well. Yeah. Pe people are not like research shows over and again, that they're not inspired by wage increases. Mm -hmm. They might think they are, but it's about, about being there in respect to the leadership, about knowing something simple, like exactly like what you say, finding out this could be so-and-so's uh, favorite sporting team, buy yeah. them some memorabilia from that, a couple of hundred bucks rather than you know a wage increase, it will go all the way. And I know that you created an environment and it's credit to yourself uh, and credit to uh, Graham Arnold, the coach as well, um, that the, the legacy, st you always know how things go by what happens following you. Yeah. And, uh, and Sydney won the championship again uh, last year, didn't they? And um, so that's a, that's a good legacy of, of yourself uh, very much. And, and, and uh, credit to Graham Arnold as well. But people need to know this. If you're a leader in a business or anywhere, you've got to look after your people. Yeah. And I, I don't think we do that um, enough. I was going to ask you, Tess, you've, you've had a lot of leaders in your time, coaches. If you, had to, if you had to give, I suppose, some advice as someone that's followed, you're, you're a great follower as well as a great leader. And I think great leaders need to be good followers as well. But, but what would you tell a leader? What, what's, what's one thing, if you could tell a leader something, what would it be? Give them advice. Yeah, look, I think when, you, when, you're, when you're following someone, Craig, what you're looking for is direction. Mm -hmm. And that's actually in the, in the terminology to follow. Yeah. You're, you're being directed, you're being led. So honesty and communication for me is the two biggest things in leadership. Mm. And I honestly believe that you can't over communicate as a leader. Mm. Um, the more you communicate with the people in and around you, the more they feel safe and the more they will lead you. Um, and that's for me, them's the two biggest things, honesty in, in what you're delivering and communication. Yeah, no, that's really nice. And just this authenticity, just, just, yeah, you've got to care about your, about your people. Um, well, there's a great saying that nobody cares what you know until they know you care. Yeah, no, you're, and, it's, and they're simple sayings, but they, they mean so much. And yeah. um, so, so you left Sydney FC, uh, you, you've now in Perth, you're now yeah. working for the Perth Football Club. Um, and I know, or do you want to give a little bit of background about that? There was, there was family reasons for that as well. Um, but you, you're now working for another club. Yeah. Yeah, look, I could have, um, probably when, when Graham left after the 2017-18 season, um, he took over the, the national team. 
Um, I could have left then. Um, at that point, um, my wife was living in Perth. Um, Emma's father got sick a few years ago. Um, Emma and the kids had moved across here. Um, so I could have left Sydney at that point. But as you said, Steve was just taking over. Steve Cork was just taking over as the head coach. Um, Graham had left. Uh, Andrew Clark had left. Doug Kors had left. Um, so there was a lot of changes. A few players had left as well. Bobo, the top scorer, had left. Adrian Merzhevsky was a Johnny Warren medalist, best player in the competition, had left as well. So I didn't feel that it was right for me to leave Stevie in the lurch at that point as well. Um, at this point, my role was general manager of uh, football at the club. So I was heavily involved in the recruitment. So as I said, with a lot of the players leaving, I needed to stay and, and help Stevie um, recruit some players and and help him in his first year as um, a manager. Um, so my role with Graham previously was the conduit between the football department and the administration CEO and the, the board, and likewise with Stevie. So it was his first job as a head coach, um, so I wanted to stay and help him as much as possible, settle into the role. And um, So yeah, we won the championship last season, um, and then... There was a role came up at Perth, as I said, my wife and, and kids was here looking after um, her father. Um, and there was academy manager and W League manager here at Perth Glory. So head coach of the A-League team um, is a good friend of ours, as we know, Tony Popovich. Worked with him um, at Sydney FC and you worked with him at the Wanderers as well. Hayden Fox um, is the assistant coach who I played with at Sydney FC. Um, he was there in 9-10 too. Caught a penalty in the final, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Richie Garcia, who um, I played with at Sydney FC, is the NYL coach here, and I was his assistant this year. Um, Tony Pinata, the old CEO at Sydney FC, is the CEO here. So there's a lot of people that I knew from Sydney FC here. Um, obviously, the family being here, um, it was a it was an easy transition from one club to the other club. So, but my role here is the the academy manager. So working with Steve McGarry is the academy technical director, <clears throat> and Richie Garcia is the NYL um, MPL head coach. I'm also coaching the under-20s um, in the MPL um, and W League operations. So a lot of the operational stuff, contracts, um, flights, hotels, accommodation, ground transport um, for the W League side of things, working with uh, Bobby Despotowski. So it's, it's a sort of a multifaceted role um, and it's, uh, but I've enjoyed it. It's been a good challenge this year, um, something different to what I've been doing. I mean, you, you've got so many great, great qualities. Uh, look, the, the future for you is where you are at now. And I know you're one that, that stays in the present very much. But what, what would you say? Do you, you know, if you sit back and reflect and, and think, OK, this is where I want to be. Has, has it sort of crystallised in your mind a, a job that you, you like or where you'd want to be? Uh, not really, Craig. Look, I think, you know, for me, I'll, I'll be... Very, very fortunate to be involved in professional football for uh, yeah. coming up now, what's it, 20, 25, 26 years. Um, the game's given me and my family a lot, um, and I've tried to give back as much as I can through different roles and, and things. But, um, you know, the more I'm out of the actual playing side of the, the game and the administration and coaching thing, the more that idea of service and that idea of helping people um, is a real passion of mine. Mm. I've just started a psychology degree at the minute. Um, so that's, it's something that 
I feel very, very passionate about. So whether that is in football or not, um, I'm not sure. Um, I know in football it's a, it's a space that um, needs more work. It's definitely uh, an area. Um, the PFA do a good job with the players, um, the coaches. There's now a coaches association, which I know they're looking into mental health and well-being. Um, what I've found is the support and the help is there for players that are players and staff that are in positions. Yeah, it's the players and staff that aren't at clubs, aren't contracted, that are out of sight. Um, who's looking after these people? You know, you know who's picking up the phone and, and calling someone who played in the 2008-9 A-League season? Who, who's out there to help them? And that's, I know it's two, twofold. The, the, the person needs to want to ask for help. But sometimes it's not easy, you know, and you know yourself, and especially in a, in a male-dominated sport. Um, in female sport, you know, I've dealt with some issues at, at Sydney FC um, with some of the girls there. It's um, different issues, but it's all mental health and it's all, all interlinked. And it's all related. So there, there, needs to be, there needs to be an environment of care, whether it's in sport or corporate, government, business, whatever aspect of, of daily life, because everyone's fighting a battle at some point and nobody knows what that battle is. But it could be a phone call, a text message, uh, an email. Saying hello to someone in the street might change some, something for them. And, you know, I just think that there's so much out there at the minute, Craig, that it's probably wrong of me to say, well, this is my ideal situation that I'm going to work to get towards that. Um, I just think there's so much out there and we all need to do more. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think we're pretty aligned in that, that, um, I think sport's been a, a great vehicle for us, but sport is just another uh, area of life. And uh, I see, you know, I think humans all want to really maximize what they have, their potential, but sometimes you just need, need help there. And you're right, uh, a little bit of kindness goes a long way, particularly at this time uh, yeah. where we've got a lot of people in difficult sort of circumstances. You're wonderful always at reaching out and the community has got together uh to do this and and help people but it, it could be your neighbor or it could be someone uh just just down the street or at the shop I, I mean kindness i think is one of the most powerful things you can you can really have because yeah. uh, oh, we, we are social people you know humans need other humans yeah 100 percent. i think you know you're exactly, you're exactly right especially at this time at the minute when you know everything we're taught and everything we're told that if you are having any sort of feelings emotionally anxiety or anything is to be around people speak to people but particularly in this period of time that we're in at the minute where we've been told to stay at home isolate stay away from people you know so that's when things like this a zoom call or a text message or a phone call becomes so important and to stay engaged and to stay stay in touch with people um you know but you're right like, the the premier here in western australia has been fantastic um, he, brought, he brought in a thing um, at the start of uh, the lockdown period. He was very proactive. He shut down the borders. He brought in regional borders. He brought in a thing uh, called drinks on the driveway, mm. uh, which was basically on a, on a Sunday afternoon from five till six, go on your driveway and 
that commu- sense of community spirit was alive. So you go on your, your driveway and you had a, a, a beer with your next door neighbor. And um, over the weeks that we've been in, in lockdown, this thing's grown. It's almost like a street party every week now. And up until that point that you know yourself, Craig, you come home from work, you press your garage and the door goes up, you drive your car in, your garage door goes down, you might never see your neighbors. Yeah. This is an opportunity now that we've met our next door neighbors here, great people. We went camping with them last weekend. And it was all through that. It was through that sense of community. And mm-hmm. I think that was something that, if you take a positive out of this period that we're going through at the minute, we'd lost that. We lost mm. sense of community and that togetherness and everyone was so focused and wrapped up in their own little world of, I've got to get up in the morning. I've got to get into work. I've got to do my best. I've got to get home. I've got to, and you forget about, well, why are you doing it? Mm. Why are you actually doing that for? That's you know? exactly right. And, and sometimes I, I think busyness uh, is a distraction for us to really reflect on our lives. So it's been yeah. an opportunity what I've been sort of saying is to, to sit back, reflect, refocus and, and reset. And maybe the world needed that. Yeah. Anyway, mate, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Uh, always, always a pleasure. I'm lucky I can speak to you at any time, but I, I know a lot of people would really enjoy this and particularly about your, your origins that not always people really know, which uh, gets you to where you're, where you're going. A couple of things before you go. Yep. Um, you know, uh, uh, a little bit of advice if you're a young player what what your advice is coming through the way you did uh that would i think that would be really good yeah look someone asked me this the other day and as a young player i was a young once a long time ago but and you have a dream and if you're a young player you've got a dream to be a professional football you've got a dream to play in a particular league don't ever let anybody take it away from you because it's your dream so mm-hmm. And especially the game that we're involved in, or even in any business, it's a game of opinions. And someone's opinion, they might be a decision maker at the time, but they don't ultimately control your life. So never, ever let anyone take away your dream of what you want to achieve. And you might have to go somewhere else to achieve it, or you might have to go to another country like I did. I had to come to Australia. Um, But I realized my dream of being a professional footballer. Mm. No, it's great. Thanks, mate. And uh, Perth is very lucky to have you. I need to try and get you back closer to, closer to where I am, but, uh, but otherwise it's been great. Say hello to the family. Hello, Hope you all as well there. And, oh, actually, that's one last thing. Yeah. What about your advice to your kids? And not, not football players at the moment. What's your advice to them as young humans? I'll tell them just to be happy. Enjoy themselves and be happy. Um, all three of them are dancers. Yeah. They absolutely love it. Um, my son, the middle one, um, sometimes drives me crazy. He has to do a cartwheel through the kitchen if he wants to go to the fridge. Or, um, but, but he's happy. And that's the same as what my parents told me. Whatever you do, just be happy and do what makes you happy. Uh, that's amazing, Tess. All right, mate. Speak again soon. See you, Craig. Take care. Cool. Hi, thanks for listening. Terry McFlynn is a fantastic person who's had an amazing career in football and is having a great career post-football. So if you've got any questions or any uh, feedback on this interview, please send it in. But thanks for listening and have a fantastic day and I'll speak again soon.